Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. This morning's first reading is Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin and they stayed at Kadesh. There, Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness, that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no corn or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honour me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarrelled with the Lord, and where he was proved holy among them. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom, saying, This is what your brother Israel says. You know about all the hardships that have come on us. Our ancestors went down into Egypt and we lived there for many years. The Egyptians ill-treated us and our ancestors, but when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our cry and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. Now here we are at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your country. We will not go through any field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will travel along the king's highway and not turn to the right or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom answered, You may not pass through here. If you try, we will march out and attack you with the sword. The Israelites replied, We will go along the main road, and if we or our livestock drink any of your water, We will pay for it. We only want to pass through on foot, nothing else. Again they answered, You may not pass through. Then Edom came out against them with a large and powerful army. Since Edom refused to let them go through their territory, Israel turned away from them. The whole Israelite community set out from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. At Mount Hor, near the border of Edom, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, 
Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will not enter the land I gave the Israelites because both of you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Call Aaron and his son Eleazar and take them up Mount Hahor. Remove Aaron's garments and put them on his son Eleazar for Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will die there. Moses did as the Lord commanded. They went up Mount Hor in the sight of the whole community. Moses removed Aaron's garments and put them on his son Eleazar. And Aaron died there on top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. And when the whole community learned that Aaron had died, all the Israelites mourned for him 30 days. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading this morning is Numbers 21. Numbers 21. When the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Atharim, he attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord. If you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy their cities. The Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to them. They completely destroyed them and their towns. So the place was named Hormah. They travelled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go round Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread. There is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. The Israelites moved on and camped at Aboth. Then they set out from Aboth and camped in Ai-Abarim, in the wilderness that faces Moab towards the sunrise. From there they moved on and camped in the Zod Valley, they set out from there and camped alongside the Arnon, which is in the wilderness extending into Amorite territory. The Arnon is the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites. That is why the book of the Wars of the Lord says, Zahed in Sufa and the ravines, the Arnon and the slopes of the ravines that lead to the settlement of Ar and lie along the border of Moab. From there they continued on to Beer, the well where the Lord said to Moses, Gather the people together, and I will give them water. Then Israel sang this song. Spring up, O well, sing about it, about the well that the princes dug, that the nobles of the people sank, the nobles with scepters and staffs. Then they went from the wilderness to Matanah, from Matanah to Nehaliel, from Nehaliel to Bamath, and from Bamoth to the valley of Moab, where the top of Pisgah overlooks the wasteland. 
Israel sent messengers to, to say to Sihon, king of the Amorites, let us pass through your country. We will not turn aside into any field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will travel along the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sion would not let Israel pass through his territory. He mustered his entire army and marched out into the wilderness against Israel. When he reached Jahaz, he fought with Israel. Israel, however, put him to the sword and took over his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and only as far as the Ammonites because their border was fortified. Israel captured all the cities of the Amorites and occupied them, including Heshbon and all its surrounding settlements. Heshbon was the city of Sion king of, of the Amorites, who had, who had fought against the former king of Moab and had, taken him all, and had taken from him all his land as far as the Arnon. That is why the poets say, Come to Heshbon and let it be rebuilt. Let Sion's city be restored. Fire went out from Heshbon, a blaze from the city of Sion. It consumed Ar of Moab, the citizens of Arnon's heights. Woe to you, Moab! You are destroyed, people of Chebosh. He, was given, he has given up his sons as fugitives and his daughters as captives to Zion, king of the Amorites. But we have overthrown them. Heshbon's dominion has been destroyed all the way to Dibon. We have demolished them as far as Nophar, which extends to Medea. So Israel settled into the land of the Amorites. After Moses had spent, sent spies to Jazar, the Israelites captured its surrounding settlements and drove out the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up along the roads towards Bashan, and Og, king of Bashan, and his whole army marched out to meet them in battle in Edri. The Lord said to Moses, do not be afraid of him, for I have delivered him into your hands, along with his whole army and his land. Do to him what you did to Zion, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon. So they struck him down, together with his sons and his whole army, leaving them no survivors, and they took possession of his land. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, and uh, let me add my welcome to Pete's. John, is that working? It doesn't sound like it is. Fine. Lovely. Well, our question this morning is, how do we move on from times of sin and testing? How do we move on? It's a question we need to answer personally, and it's a question we need to answer corporately as well. John is, ah, there you go. Brilliant. Thank you, John. I've been chatting to uh, lots of you over the last few months, and there are different views amongst us about how we move on from all that's happened recently. Do we need to go over the past and get as much transparency as possible, weeping over past failures? Or do we need to put the past behind us now and press on with growing forward, planting churches, training leaders, advancing the gospel? Which is it? Looking back and weeping, 
or looking forward and working? Do we need to revisit the visitation or just get on with renewing our vision for the next chapter? Which is it? Well, look, clearly I'd be a fool to try and speak too authoritatively to that question. I don't know what the answer is. Not for sure. Our situation is complex. But I would like to, well, tentatively offer a perspective that I think the passage gives us today. Put a couple of stakes in the ground that kind of give us some bounds within which to work and work it out. Though each of you is going to have to work it out individually for yourselves. But I think the basic answer this morning is, we all need to do at least a little bit of both. Confessing our sins in the past and trusting in God for future progress. I hope that's not controversial. It's not rocket science, is it? I wonder if you noticed in our two readings, today we see a turning point. A new chapter in Israel's history. It's easy to miss it because these place names in chapter 21, verse 10 and following, they aren't familiar to us, are they? Oboth and Abarim and so on. But by the end of chapter 21, did you notice, Israel have finally left the desert. That's why they move on from needing miraculous provision of water in chapter 20 to, well, chapter 21, verse 16, singing about a well. They're not in the desert anymore. They move on from a time of, uh, well, discipline and death in the desert to a time of victory and blessing as they begin to take possession of the promised land. The final words of our reading, they took possession of Og's land. The tears of sorrow in chapter 20, verse 29, as the Israelites mourn Aaron for 30 days, those tears give way in chapter 21 to songs of victory and joy. Chapter 21, verse 30, we have overthrown them, we've conquered. Israel is moving on. But even though Israel moves on, Did you notice that in both chapters, well, we see their old sins rearing their head again, don't we? In both chapters, they bring their sins with them as they move on. So chapter 20, verse 5, they grumble about God. 20, verse 5, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, we detest this miserable food. Oh, sorry, actually, that's 21, verse 5 isn't it? Let me read now actually what 25 said, 20 verse 5. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs or grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. They're so similar, I got them mixed up. Yes, there is real progress, and yet they, they just can't seem to stop being the same sinners they always were. Isn't that striking? It's right to want to move on, to want to get back to the work of advancing the gospel. Of course that's right. It has to be. And of course, it doesn't mean for us capturing slaves like in 2129 or capturing land like at the end of the chapter 21. How does Paul put it? What do we take captive? 
we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. That's what our battle is all about, isn't it? And it's right to want to keep doing that, to advance the gospel, capturing hearts and minds and bringing them into obedience to Jesus. It's right to want to work to that end. And yet, we must remain clear-sighted about our sins in the past because we will bring them into the present. It's not an either-or. Confess your sins in the past and present and trust in God for progress in the future. Do both. First then, let's... uh, Look a bit more closely at chapter 20. I think chapter 20 is a chapter that encourages us actually to weep as yesterday's sins still wreak havoc amongst the people of God. 20, did you notice it's, it's framed, bookended at the start and end by the death of Miriam in verse 1 and then the death of Aaron at the end of the chapter. A chapter of death, a chapter of mourning. We're back in Kadesh in verse 1. Uh, in verse 1, in the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin and they stayed at Kadesh. Um, Kadesh is a, a very poignant place for Miriam to die. You see, the last time we were in Kadesh was in chapter 14, where the spies were sent out to spy out the land where they returned, to lie to the people and incite rebellion, where the people were then condemned to die in the wilderness. And now we're back in Kadesh, and it's time for Miriam to die. This great princess in Israel, Aaron and Moses' sister, Miriam, who'd famously led the people in songs of worship when they first came out of Egypt and God Through Pharaoh into the sea, Miriam finally breathes her last and is buried. This shouldn't have happened. Do you know what she should have been doing for the last 40 years? She should have been leading the people in songs of victory over the Canaanites. This is tragic. Sin is tragic. And tragically, it seems that sin has stopped Israel, too, from making any spiritual progress. We see them sin for the sixth time here in verses 3 to 5. Did you see? Verse 3, they're fed up again and bitter in the present. Verse 3, if only we died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. They fear for their future. Verse 4, why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? And they fantasize about their past. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? Conveniently forgetting that Egypt was a place of slavery and death. Quite simply, yet again for the sixth time, they fail to have faith in God, but pick a fight with him instead. It's a shocking moment, and not because we haven't seen it before, But precisely because we have again and again and again and again and again and again. It's how their journey actually began way back in, well, before Numbers, in in the book of Exodus, in Exodus 17. 
in a place called Meribah. Exodus 17, Meribah. Meribah means quarreling. And did you notice here in Numbers 20, verse 13, Moses calls this place Meribah too. Two Meribahs, bookending their whole journey. You see, for all their years of wandering, Israel keep on failing to have faith, keep on picking a fight with the God who just wants to save them and do them good. I wonder, do you ever despair of beating sin, defeating it? Do you ever fantasize about returning to a life without God? I've been doing that my whole Christian life. Do you ever fear for your future, even though God's got it? I've been doing that my whole Christian life. Do you ever get fed up and bitter in the present? As you already know from my tales of smashing plates, I've been doing that my whole Christian life. And you know, it's not that I haven't made progress. It's not that some of those battles haven't, haven't got easier for me as I've gone on. But the same patterns keep occurring again and again and again. Do you know that proverb, Proverb 26, 11, As a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. It's not a pleasant proverb, is it? It's actually... Um, I think going to become one of my main arguments for not getting a dog. Um, we don't need another. We've already got me. I'm going to tell my kids and wife who keep badgering me. We cause so much dysfunction, don't we, through our sin. So much pain to people around us and to ourselves. And we keep doing it again and again, don't we? We might want to move on. But the truth is we can't, not fully and finally in this life. Not in the sense of stopping sinning altogether. We never can. Not in this life. Now maybe you feel I've overstepped the mark slightly there saying, we and including you. I mean, I don't know half of you, half as well as I ought to, to even make half-educated guesses about your spiritual state, do I? Well, perhaps that's true, but do you see that the Holy Spirit consistently presents the wretched problem of sin as a problem not just for plebs like me, but a problem for all of us? Even the high priest of Israel, Aaron, even that holy and humble prophet, Moses. Moses succumbs tragically, tragically to sin at last, just before this new chapter. It's such a tragedy. But you might be thinking, come on, is his sin really that bad? That he's uh, fated then to die in the desert? Has he really done anything so terrible? Well, let's look at it together. Just compare what God tells him to do in verse 8 with what he actually does do and says in verses 10 to 11. So verse 8, God says, verse 8, Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. Uh, you see, despite the people's repeated failure, God's patience is beyond compare. 
And God wants to provide for the people in power. Back at the first Meribah in Exodus 17, and I don't know whether you know this, but I think Moses does want us to compare those two stories, doesn't he? Back at that first Meribah in Exodus 17, God told Moses to strike the rock with his staff. But notice here, here Moses is told just to speak, to say the word. God is ramping up the display of his powerful provision. No staff needed, just a word. And the rock will bring out water, enough to feed, well, two million people and their livestock. Because God can turn the dry and lifeless desert to life-giving springs at a word. And he wants to for his people because he loves them. Do you see, God wants to woo Israel, to woo them, to, to stop fighting him and start putting their faith in him instead as their powerful, patient provider. But look now at what Moses does in verses 10 and 11. He doesn't speak to the rock, verse 10, but to the people. Do you see what he says, verse 10? Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Do you see Moses then? He misrepresents God. He decides this is the time for rebuke, not wooing the people. He makes God out to be a begrudging provider. Must we bring you water? And as for that, we, must we? As though it's Aaron's and Moses' power bringing out the water and not God's. How arrogant. He's inserting himself into God's position in all sorts of ways. And then in verse 11, he simply disobeys. Verse 11, then Moses raised his arm and notice instead of speaking, he struck the rock twice with his staff. God's verdict in verse 12 is justified because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites. No more leading them to Canaan for you. Do you see, dig a little deeper into Moses' actions and they might seem minor on the surface, but underneath, it's all the same attitudes that we've been seeing in the people of Israel all along, isn't it? Disbelief. Disbelief that God's way is best. And because he disbelieves, he disobeys, just like the people have been doing all along. And you know, it's bad enough for the people to do that. But when a leader does it, when a leader does it, he ends up misrepresenting the God in whose name he leads. And the damage can be devastating. Pray for your leaders. And look, the point here is simply this. If even Moses rebels this way, holy and humble Moses, who's described in chapter 12 as faithful in all God's house, described as the most humble man on earth, if even he can act so arrogantly as to set aside the word of God, then isn't sin all pervasive, a problem for all of us, isn't it? Even the best of us, the humblest and holiest, can be tripped up. And most of us, including me, simply sin on repeat again and again. 
So then sin and its consequences never go away. The final scene in chapter 20 just sums it all up. Aaron handing on the priestly garments to his son, Eleazar. He has to hand them on because the people will always sin. So they will always need a high priest. He has to hand them on. He has to hand them on because he has sinned and now he must die. Like his sister Miriam, Aaron should have been at the head of the march. Like Moses, he should have been leading the people into the land. It's tragic. It's frustrating. Sin destroys what is good. It holds us up. It sours all that should be good. And so it's no wonder in verse 29 that the whole community mourn 30 days when they see Aaron's death. Can I say then, as we close on chapter 20 and move on to 21, you have permission to weep. You have permission to weep if that's something you want to do. Weep as we look back at the way our sins have played out amongst us. Permission, of course, personally to look back at your own life and the way your sins have derailed and destroyed things for you. Things that should have been so good. You have permission to weep. But wonderfully, it's a sermon of two halves. And so we do get to move on. Have you guys heard of um, Victor Pinnell? Do you know Victor Pinnell? No reason why you should. He's just an ordinary bloke from Cardiff. But the thing about Victor Pinnell is he was the first baby born on VE Day. That great turning point in World War II as it finally came to an end. Victory in Europe Day. Whilst everyone else was parting, including the doctors and nurses, his mum was in agonizing pain. Uh, she called him Victor to mark Victory Day. Now, to make it even more confusing for his dear mum, her twin brother had died just days before Victory Day. What a what a set of emotions there must have been in her heart that day. Imagine the grief at losing a twin brother. I'm a twin. I couldn't imagine losing my sister. But imagine the joy of gaining a son and moving on to a brighter future. The pain of loss and heartbreak at the devastating effects of war still leaving their mark forever. But also the joy a victory, and moving on. Can I say the Christian journey is a similar experience? Of course, the ultimate destination, the heavenly Jerusalem, will be a place of pure joy, so hang on till you get there. But every step of the way until we do will be a time of, well, both. Mourning and joy. Tragic failure, but also, well, victory. And new chapters. Chapter 21 is a chapter of joy. The mood shifts, doesn't it? Did you notice 21 is framed not by the death of Israel now, but by their victories, joyful victories over the Canaanites. So we see the victory over King Arad in 21 verses 1 to 3 and over Og at the end of the passage. Og, the best-named king in the Bible. Og. I imagine he was like he sounded. But Israel beat him. They win. 
But do you see it's not all plain sailing again? I take it this encounter with Arad at the start of the passage is actually a test for Israel. Did you see the end of verse 1? The Israelites were actually captured themselves, some of them, at the end of verse 1. What's going to happen? Will they grumble? Will they disbelieve or disobey? We'd be expecting them to, wouldn't we? But no, no, no. They turn to God in faith and pray. Verse 2, then Israel made this vow to the Lord. If you will deliver these people into our hands, we will destroy their cities totally. Isn't this progress? It's the first time since leaving Sinai that they actually trust God and beat the Canaanites. We're often accused as conservative evangelicals of proud prayerlessness. Is it true? Well, if it is, I pray that God would use the times of testing that we're going through to teach us to pray. That would be real progress, wouldn't it? I'm so tempted in my own battles with sin or my battles to progress the gospel, so tempted to swing between, I can't do it, or I can do it. When all along, what I need to say is, God, you can do it. Help me. Failing to trust him. That's been the heart of all Israel's sins so far. So, so Israel then have turned a real corner, trusting that he can do it, can't, haven't they? Right at the start of our series in Numbers, I promised you that things would take a turn for the better by November. Well, it's October. Uh, that's expectation management, isn't it? Well, I wish it was as easy to manage expectations on our own battles with sin or the life of our church or the progress of the gospel in our country. But I don't know when or even if we're going to turn a corner like Israel do here. But do you know, I do know it is right to keep pressing on, trusting in God and praying for a brighter tomorrow. Praying again for full Christianity Explored courses. Praying for us to grow as Christians in faith and hope and love as a church family. Praying for more church plants. Of course it's right to pray for that. Praying for all God's people to be empowered for service in all kinds of ways. And I also know this, that, that progress really is possible with him. But it won't be long before the same old sins rear their ugly head again. 21 verses 4 to 5. Just after a moment of real progress, again sin. Verse 4, they travel from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go round Edom. Do you know the reason why they had to go round Edom? They should have been invading Canaan from Kadesh, where we've just seen them. But because they rebelled there, God's given them a different route. They have to now um, attack from the east, from Moab. And the quick route would be to go through Edom up to Moab. But because of, well, because of Edom's refusal to let them through, they have to go down, round the desert, and then up to Moab. But this all only happens, this delay, because they sinned in the first place and didn't get to attack from Kadesh. This delay is a result of their own failure. But do you see what happens, verse 4? They grow impatient on the way. And verse 5, they blame God. Even though it's their fault. Their fault that they've been 40 years in the desert. Their fault that they're still on this long, 
tiring journey. Sin number seven. Number seven, it's the number of completeness, which I guess is just to say that this journey has been completely tainted by sin every step of the way, even in its brightest moments in chapter 21, the seventh sin. But I guess it feels like we're right back to square one. But do you know we're not? We're not back to square one. Not because the people aren't sinful as they always have been here, but because, well, they, they do something really different here. Did you notice verse 7? Verse 7, the people came to Moses and said, we sinned. We sinned. When we spoke against the Lord and against you, pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. Do you see? They confess their sin. It's actually the first time that they confess sincerely. And God's way of saving them is a real test of whether they mean it. And, and they do. I wonder if you can imagine it. Imagine, imagine that I release my pet snakes, vipers, Russell vipers, on the floor right now. What would you want to do if there could be vipers right now on the floor? What would you be doing? Wouldn't you be looking down at your ankles? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be impossible to resist the temptation? So then when God says raise a snake on a pole above their head so that they have to look up to be saved, it is a test of whether they will trust him. Whether they will trust him. It wouldn't have been easy to do. But you know, even more than that, this is a way of forcing them to face up to themselves as they lift their faces to the snake. It's curious, isn't it? Why a snake on a pole? Why would that be the way to save people? And also, why does Jesus use the snake on the pole in John chapter 3 as a, as a picture of him being lifted up on the cross? Why? Well, I take it that as they look at these fiery serpents, what they're looking at is the judgment that they deserve. They're facing up to what they deserve as they lift their faces to the serpent. And isn't that true for us? As we lift our faces to the cross. You see, we often think of looking at the cross as looking at our salvation. But, you know, I think Jesus has in mind, well, yeah, of course that. But also this idea that as we look at the cross, we're facing up to what we deserve. I wonder, would it shock you if I said that because of our sins, we deserve to be crucified as rotten rebels? Would that shock you? I hope it doesn't if you're a Christian. If it does, then, well, it's time to face up to your sin. That's the heart of our message. As we look at the cross, we're seeing what we deserve. Can I say, use the cross to help you confess, to help you face up to what you're really like. And then use the cross to remember that our patient, powerful, providing God has provided a way to be saved. God wants us to make progress. But progress doesn't mean perfection, not in this life. Rather, it means learning to confess, learning to see ourselves for who we really are. 
I had a conversation with Steph, who's helping me out with student things, or rather, I'm helping her out with student things. Um, I haven't got a clue what's going on, but Steph's brilliant, our um, new female student worker. And I was worried that Steph would be rocked by everything that's happened amongst us as a church, so I was telling her that in my experience, in every church, there's a disaster every 10 years or so, sin never goes away, and Steph just looked at me skeptically and said simply, well, in my experience, it's more like every five years. That was me put in my place. Never mansplain to Steph. But do you know when, not if, but when sin strikes again? Maybe this time we'll have the wherewithal to deal with it better. Not to hide from it or to try and hush it up, but to draw the poison by facing up to it, fronting up to it, and being quick to confess that would be real progress. Let's pray. Father, our our patient, powerful provider, forgive us all that is past and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory and honor of your name. Amen.